HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza. It's a beautiful, sunny May day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. But on air, as host of The Farm Report, I talk with folks all along the food chain um, about food production and how we do think about it, how we maybe should be thinking about it. And today I'm, I'm excited to have us uh, joined on the line by Jose Oliva. He's the co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I'm glad to be here. So we are kind of continuing our ongoing um, coverage and partnership with Slow Food USA in preparation for their Slow Meat Conference, um, Summit Conference, uh, that's coming up this June. And Jose, you were, you know, we got connected through Megan, who's my co-producer on this series. And, you know, your organization, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, is really a coalition of worker-based orgs, um, really thinking broadly about the entire food chain from the people who plant, harvest, process, pack, transport, prepare, serve, and sell our food. And and your organization is looking to um, support fair wages and enhance uh, working conditions for everyone along this food chain, um, which is super exciting. I feel like your organization in a lot of ways is... Uh, is an organizational representation of what I try to highlight on my show every week. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the group got started and how you got involved? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, as you said, we're a membership-based organization. We're made up of groups that represent food workers, uh, from farms to processing plants to restaurants, right? So. Uh, what I like to say is that from field to fork, it's our members that make food happen. Um, our combined membership is close to 300,000 strong. Um, 
we um, got started a little bit over five years ago. And, uh, you know, when we, when we got started, the reason we got started is um, that many of our members, uh, I was actually a restaurant worker for many, many years and was a, 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 one of the participants of the Restaurant Opportunity Center, which is one of the, one of the restaurant worker organizations in the U.S., um, and we had tons of people coming to us, members, restaurant workers, who were telling us our clients, our customers, come into our restaurant and they ask about the food. They ask about whether this uh, chicken is organic. They ask about, you know, where these berries were grown. They ask about whether there were pesticides used in, uh, in this particular salad. Um, but no one ever asks about the workers, right? The people who are actually growing the food, who are transporting the food, who are serving the food. Um, and so it became pretty evident to us that there was this need, right, to create um, some kind of presence in the growing discourse around food um, that talked specifically about workers. And so Rock, along with a few other organizations, including the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which is a farm worker group down in Immokalee, Florida, uh, along with uh, Brand Workers, which is another group uh, right there in your backyard, backyard in New York, um, along with uh, Northwest Arkansas Workers Center, which uh, you know organizes poultry workers or po- poultry processing workers. Um, we all came together and decided to form this Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, and the alliance, you know, originally our goal was let's insert workers into this ongoing conversation around food, right, so that we are also at the table when we're talking about, you know, how to improve our, uh, our food system. And what we noticed in the process of doing that is that the food the food movement itself was uh, sort of subdivided into these three other categories, right? There were folks who were concerned about what food does to the human body, so health folks, right? There were folks who were concerned about what food does to our environment. Um, and then there were folks who were concerned about what food does to communities, both in terms of access to good food in low-income uh, communities of color, and also in terms of urban ag and rural agriculture as well, right? So as, as we grew and as our presence and our footprint grew inside of the food movement, uh, we started to realize that we needed to actually speak with one voice, given that the problems that we're looking at in the food system are actually not about one of the areas, right? It's, it's ultimately... The bad food that is being grown, that's making us sick, that's also destroying the environment, and that pays uh, low wages and bad working conditions for workers, right? So systemically, we have to change that. It's not about, you know, the workers only or the health <laughs> of the human being only or the health of the environment only. Um, so that's it. That's uh, that's our story. Since we started in uh 2008, we started to do uh, a lot of work bringing together those four elements of the food uh, movement. Um, We're now at the point where we're pushing uh, local municipal um, 
uh, ordinances that we're referring to as the good food purchasing policies as a way of actually unifying the food movement, right? Because each one of these purchasing policies, what it does is creates a filter for the food that is bought by municipalities, right? So right now in most municipalities, people um, or the, the folks who are in charge of buying the food for that municipality have one criteria, which is buy the cheapest food. <laughs> um, and what we're saying is that's not enough, right? We need to buy uh, good food for the kids of our public school systems, and we need to buy healthy food for our environment, and we need to buy food that actually uh, feeds the economic um, incentives of our own communities, right, and pays living wages and, and good working conditions. So that's what the good food purchasing policies do. Um, we recently passed one in L.A. in 2012, uh, and now currently are working uh, in New York and in Chicago and a couple of other places in the Bay Area, for instance, to pass good food purchasing policies there. Well, I want to. Well, that's talk, what we're doing. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about those purchasing uh, policies and the and the good food pledge in just a minute. But before we do, uh, I want to mm-hmm. kind of orient folks a little bit more to the to the people and the the kind of different um, the the different kind of like wages and and the the number of people we're talking about who are part mm. of this employment sector. Um, when we look at the food chain, you guys have this great video. Um, I think it's pretty new called Guess Who's Coming to Breakfast. And, and I just like, I thought it was so smart. You know, it's a family sitting around the breakfast table and you think, you know, the kid's going to have, you know, a question about the birds and the bees and where do babies come from? But he's like asking his parents, where do food, where does food come from? And they're like, ah, it comes from the mm-hmm. store. And immediately there's this parade of all the people who, as we said earlier, are planting and harvesting and processing and packing. So can you give us a little sense of, of scale? You know, how big is this industry? And then kind of as a follow up to that, when we're looking at these workers, um, you know, from the farm to to the store or to the restaurant, is there a group that is most affected or most critically in need of kind of support or attention? You know, where are the kind of real um, target zones, if, if there are any? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, so when we talk about the food system uh, from an economic perspective, we're talking about the largest private sector employer in the United States, right, with well over 20 million workers. Um, so, you know, you can, you, you can do this uh, informal poll <laughs> right now with, uh, with some of the folks around you, but if you ask people who has worked in a restaurant, um, you'll always get people raising their hands, right? It's always it's about 50% of Americans who have worked or uh, will work in the restaurant industry. It's a huge number. Um, so restaurant workers by themselves are about 13 million of that 20 million number. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, the again, from an economic perspective, the interesting thing about the food system is that because it is now the largest private sector employer, it is actually setting trends. It's setting wages and conditions trends for the rest of the economy. So think of it this way. When we had manufacturing as the core of our economy, their wages and their conditions set the tone 
for the rest of the economy, right? So people needed to compete from a supply and demand point of view with manufacturing when they offered jobs. Um, and so that, me- that meant that you had relatively high wages, or not high necessarily, but livable wages. Right. Um, and you had some, some benefits uh, that were offered by most employers. As manufacturing became less prevalent uh, in our economy, and now obviously it's, it's almost completely decimated, um, and as the food system began to take over, those wages and those conditions just took a nosedive, right? The average wage for a food worker is in the $8.50 an hour range. Um, So food workers are actually two times more likely to um, seek out assistance for food uh, than anyone else in the work in in our uh, in our workplace, so it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? We went from having uh, you know relatively livable wages in workplaces to basically mixed jobs, right? In the last three decades, um, and that transition is in part because the food system uh, has grown tremendously. Uh, in part because um, the food system represents a uh, new model, a new economic model um, that has less centralized workplaces. So the workplaces are a lot smaller, uh, making it less likely for them to have a union. Um, They also represent a new demographic, right? So close to 70% of tipped workers in the United States are women. Um, and over half of those women are earning poverty wages. And so you're, you're talking about not just a new demographic, uh, but sort of a new mode of production. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with that new mode of production, a race to the bottom, right? Uh, an absolute uh, race to see who can pay the least amount and who can actually squeeze workers the most. Um, and that's creating, you know, essentially this vacuum in our economy uh, for livable wage jobs and for good working conditions. And if we're looking, I mean, if we're turning the lens kind of back to the farm and we're thinking about kind of farmers, farm owners, farm workers, farm workforce, I mean, are we seeing that the like across the spectrum, these groups are are impacted by this wage crunch or or is it like workers are feeling much more of the brunt than than farm owners or are we you know seeing different changes depending on like the size or even the the type of thing that farms are producing i mean are there are there bright spots or dark spots um in the in the kind of farm landscape mm, yeah yeah that's another great question so so yeah in terms of the farming uh the, the framework for farm owners um, the main issue is fair pricing. Uh, so a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not an expert on farm uh, ownership or farmers in general, um, but I can tell you that the folks that I know who are have all uh, made it perfectly clear that the main problem is that the way um, the way that pricing is structured right now, it incentivizes large corporate-owned factory farms, um, and it penalizes smaller, medium-sized farmers. 
And so we end up with essentially the same situation that you have for workers um, being uh, being the reality for farmers, right? Which means that if you're a large farmer, large farm owner, um, you can afford, uh, and not only can you afford to, to have very low prices for your products, but you're being subsidized uh, at a very high level by the federal government to continue to bring those prices down, which undercuts, obviously, the smaller, medium-sized farmers. Now, what ends up happening on the labor front for those folks is that, obviously, the smaller to medium-sized farmer can't afford to pay livable wages. Oftentimes, they can't afford to pay themselves livable wages, right? And they have to sell off their farms and move somewhere else. Um, and so it ends up becoming this, um, you know, vicious cycle of the, the smaller farmers paying less wages or lower wages uh, and the larger farms, the big corporate uh, factory farms, um, not necessarily paying higher wages, but having nothing to compete against, they can pay workers very low wages and um, and get away with it. And so, yeah, you, we, we end up with a really um, vicious cycle, race to the bottom, uh, where smaller farmers are being squeezed on both ends, uh, and the incentive is basically to be either sell off your land, sell sell the land to a, a large corporate uh, factory farm um, or to, uh, become, uh, to become something else, to move on into a different industry. Well, so shifting gears a little bit here um, and thinking about the Slow Meat Conference that's happening mm-hmm. in Denver, you know, why is it important for your organization to be in attendance there? Like, what are you hoping to get and to, to walk away with? And where you can, um, are there issues that are specific to uh, meat and the meat industry that, um, you know, are different than things you're finding in other types of uh, production? Yeah. So we're, we're attending and we're involved in, in the slow meat movement uh, for two reasons. One, um, it's everything that is better for the environment and for um, our health is also better for workers. Uh, and so we're very, very clear about that, that to the extent that we're able to move our market uh, in the direction of better food, right? That means food that is uh, that has these five very critical uh, elements, right? That's locally grown, that's sustainable, that's fair, that's humane, and that's healthy. Uh, that if we move in the direction of, of a food system that has those five elements, I think we're doing what's right for workers. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, we do think that... Um, the way we're going to be able to move our food system, the way that we're going to be able to create a good food system, is if we break out of our silos. <laughs> so if we stop thinking about, um, you know, our health as the primary, most important thing, uh, but we start to realize that our health is directly connected to the working conditions and the environmental conditions of that factory farm, then we're going to get somewhere. Right? But to the extent that we're only focused on one of those elements, I think that's where we oftentimes hit a wall 
both because we can't move a large corporation like Monsanto or Walmart or Garden in the direction of uh, better, healthier food, given that their commitment is, number one, to profits and everything else is secondary. Um, so to the extent that we're able to unify all of our demands and everything that we need, um, then we can get somewhere. <laughs> so that's the second reason that we're going to the to the conference. Well, I think that uh, your, with- your like, narrative really strikes me in that it seems like very efficient, essentially, with, like, the in, like, one fell swoop, I get to eat, like, better healthier food that also has um, these great impacts on the people who are producing it and the land upon which it is produced. Um, We have just a few minutes left. And so I want to touch on one of the tools that your team has um, been working on that you alluded to a little earlier in the interview, which is the good food purchasing program. Um, I know Mm -hmm. that you have, um, have launched in LA. I was surprised. I did not know that LA, um, you know, has 10 million residents, which is about 26% of California's population. Um, tell us a little bit about the good food purchasing pledge. And, and I think in particular to me, it was interesting that you're, you know, you're targeting working with a, a specific municipality and that you're looking at food service institutions with budgets over $1 million. So why start at this level, and why was that $1 million mark the right space to target? Right. That's that's where we're at now, but that doesn't mean that's where it's going to stay. Um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to have an impact on the market. So the bottom line to us is the city of L.A. spends a little bit over $2.75 billion with a B. With a B, on yeah. Food on food, uh, on, on food every year. Uh, so that's 400,000 meals every day that are served um, in, in um, L.A. public schools and in L.A. Uh, other services that L.A. provides. Um, so to us, it was pretty clear that if we could move that market, if we could move the, that, that humongous market, uh, we could have a regional impact. Uh, so the idea uh, emerged as a conversation that we were having with several of our other partners in the L.A. Um, uh, food Policy Council um, that represented different sectors of the food movement. Right? So there were folks who were pushing and, and were concerned on uh, issues of local purchasing and, and ensuring that both local businesses, local small and medium-sized businesses uh, that grow food were able to access the sort of growing market of the um, of, of the municipality, um, and then there were other folks who were concerned, obviously, on the systemic, sustainable, and environmental impacts of growing food at the scale of monoculture, especially um, that some of the farms in the valley were growing, um, and obviously there were folks. Uh, we were at the table, right? So we, there were folks who were concerned about how. Workers were treated in these um, in these operations and in some of the food service providers in the city, and so the conversation really uh, evolved from what can we do together to how can we move the market in the direction that we need it to go, uh, literally for our own survival right, as a species, um, and so the. The idea of uh, putting it into a municipal code uh, wasn't really far-fetched. It was more of a uh, a, a sort of an organic, no pun intended, product of the conversation. Um, 
and really the five basic uh, principles that the GFPP, the Good Food Purchasing Policy, uh, contains sort of reflect the folks who were at the table, right? So there were local is the first one, right? And there were a lot of businesses and and local uh, folks who, who wanted to eat local. Um, sustainable is the second one. So there were tons of environmental organizations that were part of that conversation. Fair is the third one, and that obviously reflects on working conditions and, and wages. Uh, humane is the fourth one, uh, and it's all around animal uh, well-being and, uh, you know, a- animal agriculture. And the fifth one is, is healthy, so it's just around nutrition and ensuring that we have uh, the best product that we're consuming, the best product that, that's available. Um, and then moving that, turning that into a policy, which is, I know, uh, could be boring to some folks. <laughs> uh, to us, it was exciting because it meant that we can um, create a filter, like I said at the top end of the show, right? We can create a filter that uh, tells our municipality uh, what the food is that we should be buying so that it isn't just a matter of this is the cheapest thing available and therefore that's what we're going to buy um, to, you know, having these five value categories that allow for the food to actually have um, more of an impact on our health and our environment and our society than what we would have if it wasn't, um, if, if we had no values for our food at all. Yeah, well, definitely exciting stuff. And, and if folks want to learn more, uh, I recommend they check out goodfoodla.org. Um, Jose, it's been really great chatting with you today. I appreciate you taking some time, and I look forward to seeing you uh, out in Denver in June. Oh, absolutely, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, if you want to hear more from the Food Chain Workers, you can find them at foodchainworkers.org or on Twitter. They are at foodchainworker. We are going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we will be joined in studio by a very special guest. I'm excited to introduce you to one of the new supporters of the network and this show, so definitely hang tight through the break. We'll be right back.
book a farm escape. Escapemaker.com, a guide to local getaways, is offering a two-night farm escape that includes lodging, a visit to an apiary, wine tasting at a vineyard, and a special tour of Bobolink Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey. Transportation is included. For details, visit escapemaker.com or come by the Bobolink Dairy stand at the new open-air Fulton Stall Market on Front Street in the South Street Seaport District. Located where New York City's public food markets began in the 1800s, Fulton Stall Market is open weekends 10 to 5 and is the first farmer's market in the city to offer ready-to-eat foods made by the farmers who produce them, along with a radio station, live music, and cooking workshops for families. Now offering spring flowers and plants, organic vegetables, pizza made in a wood-burning oven using farm ingredients, local fruit preserves, yogurts and ice cream, and Bobolink Dairy's famous artisanal cheese and breads. The market is a great reason to rediscover the authentic seaport. For more information, visit FultonStallMarket.com. All right, we are back. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report, and we are going to bring you more of that lovely voice you heard on the break. We are joined in the studio by Chris De La Torre. How'd I do? Pretty good. Awesome. I wanted to add more like (laughs) to it, but I got nervous. Um, Of EscapeMaker.com. EscapeMaker.com is a new underwriter of the Heritage Radio Network, and every week on The uh, Farm Report, throughout the summer, we're going to be hearing a little bit from them, they're going to be highlighting some amazing opportunities to explore the uh, food and farming world beyond the studio doors. But we thought we would kick it off with a little bit of an introduction for our listeners um, on EscapeMaker.com. And we'll get a chance to hear from Chris about their work and, and what you guys can look forward to on the weekly update from them. So jumping in, I mean, we heard a little bit, obviously, in the break, but Escape Maker, what um, what can folks expect if they hit up the website or, and start to explore your, your services a little bit? Cool. Well, first, thank you so much for having me in the studio. It's always really fun to come over to Roberta's. Um, we are... We have so many projects going right now to promote farm visits and agritourism and uh, bringing on some farm partners to Heritage, to your show, is a big part of letting people know what options there are in and outside of the city so that they can get involved in um, understanding where their food comes from, but also as a really important component of economic development for regional farms. So we are kind of tackling this from a couple of different ways. Um, One is you can visit us at Grow NYC Green Markets all season long. We're popping up all around the city to talk to consumers about Um, farm visits that they can go on and any special events that are coming up in the season. We're handing out apples, courtesy of New York Apple Association. Free apples, free apples. (laughs) (laughs) They've been a hit. People love free things in the market and the apples are beautiful. And you can take an apple from us and then go speak to the grower who's typically in the market, you know, a couple stands down. So there's like a nice... um, Uh, synchronicity there we'll say so that's one thing Um, and then we've got farmers coming in to tell you in their words what they're up to out on the farm and then very very soon you're going to be able to go to our website and find packages that um, it's kind of a neat little bundle of how you get to the farm 
what you can do on the farm and either a farm overnight stay or um, a place nearby, like a local B&B. And so we're developing relationships and kind of connecting the dots between regional transportation options. And we're really trying to prioritize um, alternative means of transportation. So maybe if you don't have a car but you still want to get out of the city, we're going to give you as much opportunity and information to do that. That is like definitely where I'm at. I'm like, no car, what do I do? So many people. And there is something that you know, that adds an experiential component, even if you do have a car and maybe you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint, or maybe you just haven't been on Metro North, let's say, and seen the beautiful ride from Grand Central Station out to Poughkeepsie. And along the way, there are a lot of sort of agriculturally relevant stops that you can visit. Um, it's, It's really a nice experience. That's awesome. So I think, you know, one of the things that um, I feel like I I really gained looking at agritourism is there's something so informative. There's like such a learning experience about actually putting your feet to the ground and, and being on a farm, talking with food producers in essentially like their hood. Um, and you know, the, the benefits of that are, are kind of beyond what you get as like your personal experience, but it's also becomes this whole other kind of economic engine and resource for producers in the region to draw a little more income from some different sources. How do you guys decide what producers are a good fit to work with? That is a great question and an excellent point about sort of the economic strength of offering some sort of farm visit or class. Um, Right now, we are connecting with farmers, um, primarily farmers who are associated with Grow NYC in the New York City Green Market, not exclusively, but those are some of our first partners. And these are people who are very enthusiastic to share their mission, share how they're growing, how they're taking care of their animals, how they're um, taking care of their land, which I think it means a lot to them. They're so often kind of mired in the farm work, which is a very beautiful and enjoyable thing, but it's hard and time-consuming. And to draw people out to them, and they're already passionate about it, they expressed it to us um, either by filling out an agritourism survey. We sent out a twice previously Um, and then also some farmers who have already approached agritourism with like a business model and a very clear objective to like host people they've hired people specifically to take care of the hospitality side so those are really great early partners for us yeah no that makes a lot of sense and I think too uh, having spent some time on a farm it's it's great to essentially kind of control that visitor experience um you want to be like warm and welcoming anytime someone shows up but ultimately like you're on a schedule <laughs> um and, and and being able to create a little bit more of a structure where you can kind of like plan for that visit and really make sure that you're providing someone with like an enhanced experience um, is like such a tool kit and it'll be interesting to see as the program develops like what learnings you guys are going to have about what really works and what maybe you thought might work but wasn't oh, going to. Oh yes, that, <laughs> that learning curve is already fully happening. <laughs> um, something else that is 
been a really cool kind of secondary component. I wouldn't say secondary, but an added benefit to working with these farmers in the region is that um, farmers are involved in their communities. And so we're building travel packages that aren't just to the farm, but they're going to let you know what other interesting options are around the farm. So, for example, let's say you take the train um, upstate and the farmer maybe comes and picks you up from the station if that's something we've agreed on and you go on a farm tour you take a cheese class and then you head over to a local B&B that is also purchasing product from the farmer so that's what you get for your breakfast and then maybe the next day you go on a hike or maybe there's a great um, cultural institution nearby a great movie theater or um, what are some Example, like the Van cream. Buren. I'm like ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> Local ice cream. Um, ice cream for sure. Uh, but just so many awesome things just outside of the city, but still very rural, which is, is really nice. Yeah. So folks can definitely find you guys by visiting the website, which is super simple, escapemaker.com. One of the functions I love is, you know, you can search by date. You can search by distance or you can search by destination. So you don't really have to necessarily like know what you're looking for. You can kind of have um, the experience to kind of stumble upon or get inspired by some of the stuff that you guys have outlined. Or I can find tools that really help me stick to a particular criteria or a particular region if that's what I'm interested in. So each week, basically, you're going to be pairing us up with different producers that you work with. And we're going to get a chance to chat with farmers Uh, and producers about um, what you can expect if you visit the farm. So super excited. Definitely stay tuned for that. That's going to be at the end of every farm report throughout the summer. Chris, anything that's coming up in, in the next couple that folks should kind of put on their calendar now? Yes. So um, this Saturday, we will have our pop-up stand at the Fort Green Market. May 30th, we will be in Tribeca on their Saturday market. And June 17th, we'll be at Getaway Day in Grand Central. Um, we'll be joined by a lot of other destination partners. And any excuse to go to Grand Central Station recreationally, you should, because it's one of our really special New York City buildings. Um, another thing, follow us on social media. You uh, Coming up this weekend and next, you'll get some sneak peeks into a video series. We're going upstate to shoot with some of our partners, um, Breezy Hill Orchard and Wilklow, as well as Bad Seed Cider. So Ooh. it's going to be really, really fun. I'm a little bit jealous as like this is like perfect cider drinking weather. Um, awesome. Well, like I said, look forward to more from Escape Maker on the Farm Report every week throughout the summer. In the meantime, visit them at uh, the one of the farmer's markets if you're here in the city and via the World Wide Web at escapemaker.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this has been another episode of the Farm Report. We come to you live every Thursday at 1 o'clock. If you like the program, please find us on iTunes and subscribe. Um, better yet, leave a review. It really helps other folks find the show um, and like it like I hope you do thanks so much for listening stay tuned in thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org 
You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>